everybody. Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Pakulski. This podcast really focuses our attention and bringing you the best information that exists anywhere in the world and sometimes navigating the vast landscape of overwhelming information. It's incredibly difficult. As you'll know, information is really no longer valuable, right? Information is everywhere. It's sometimes learning to uh, navigate it all, sift through it all, and really get to the gold, really get to the insight, right? Information is longer valuable. Insight or context are incredibly valuable. So when you find people who are not only really, really educated, but really, really insightful, and they can provide a perspective that allows you to ultimately take action, ultimately have useful and valuable action, that's really where the gold is. That's really where the rubber meets the road. And that's really what we're looking to provide here at the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. And today's guest has been an industry leader for a long, long time. And as you'll know, success leaves clues. If someone is repeatedly successful as an author, as an editor, as uh, in every area of his life, as a father, then there's something to be garnered here. And so, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I bring you Adam Bornstein. And if you haven't heard the name Adam Bornstein, you've absolutely read a lot of his stuff. Um, if you've heard of the website Livestrong, which is most closely synonymous with Lance Armstrong, um, if you've heard of Men's Fitness Magazine, um, if you've heard of um, Tim Ferriss, if you've heard of Arnold Schwarzenegger's stuff or, or read any of Arnold Schwarzenegger's stuff, maybe in the last few years, Adam is also a New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning fitness and nutrition journalist and editor. Uh, this gentleman's resume is unbelievable and is someone who I look up to as someone who just constantly shows up with the highest quality information, the highest quality standards for himself and the product he puts out. Adam is the CEO and founder of Born Fitness and uh, someone that is truly worth paying attention to. Today we talk about uh, how to confront your story of not being disciplined enough and how to create effective habits. We talk about an effective marketing framework for anyone who ultimately wants to launch a fitness business or fitness product. Uh, we talk about how to interrupt an industry space with fresh new ideas and perspective how the intensity and focus of training can translate into business success, which you guys know I'm a big, big fan of, tools to confront failure in business and in life and ultimately turn it into a success, how to use a concept of inversion, quote unquote inversion, to start uh, at the end of goals in weight loss, training, and business, uh, and ultimately engineer the steps you need to take to not only be successful, but also to simply not fail. Loved my conversation with Adam and uh, everything he uh, he brings to the world. This guy is a winner, and winners leave successful trails and frameworks and have so much valuable to offer. Adam, thank you for being here. Adam, thank you for being a guest. Uh, thank you for being a listener of Muslim Intelligence Podcast and being so loyal. I do my best to sift through uh, the, the robust, vast world of information to bring you things that are hugely valuable. I understand that life can be stressful and you understand life can be stressful. We're all under stress. Stress is a part of life. It's not going away, nor do we want it to go away. 
But learning how to navigate stress, learning how to navigate what we call resilience or maybe anti-fragility is just vital when it comes to being successful. As soon as our brain experiences an excessive amount of stress beyond what we're capable of tolerating, the brain kind of goes offline and you become less capable of thinking, you become less capable of performing. So finding this sweet spot of you know, where we need a certain amount of friction, a certain amount of challenge or, or um, stress to induce this really deep state of flow uh, and learning how to kind of thread the needle. The right amount of stress and the right amount of uh, friction can be very, very difficult. You know, we don't want to have the absence of it. We want to find the right amount. If we do too much, we burn out. And if we have not enough, we don't adapt. We don't change. So, one of the beautiful things about the direction of the world, the direction of technology is we can start to quantify our stress. We can start to look at stress in terms of, well, how much is that sweet spot to thread the needle to allow my body to adapt and get stronger without ultimately digging a huge hole for myself and not, a lot, not allowing myself to be able to recover. Not everything is stressful. The training is stressful. Relationships are stressful. Money is stressful. Work is stressful. The media, Lord knows, certainly stressful. The, the, the scope of the world, the direction of the world is stressful for all of us right now. And so one tool that myself and my team are looking at deeply is AIM-7. So many of you have heard my podcast with Eric Corum in the past. Eric is a previous guest on the show, which if you haven't checked out, I strongly suggest you check out. He is a performance coach and Olympic trainer. Uh, he's also created this company called AIM-7. And AIM-7 allows you to take this data that you're being given from things like your Apple Watch ordering in your Garmin, if you see me wearing my Garmin, or maybe your Polar H10 chest strap, and turn it into usable recommendations, usable personalized recommendations to increase your adaptive capacity. AIM-7 is just launched, so you have the opportunity to get into the app early and ultimately utilize some of the earliest versions of the app to ultimately understand how to most effectively interact with your stress and your fitness. Um, I strongly suggest you head over to, actually, if you scroll down, if you're on, uh, whether it be Apple, uh, Apple Podcast or Spotify, and you actually check the show notes, you can click on a link to directly get a seven-day free trial. And if you're enjoying the app, if you use the code MUSCLEINTELLIGENCE, all caps, you get 25% off your first month. And I think you're going to enjoy it. I think it's a really useful app. It's relatively simple. Uh, and again, they're always developing it. This is a relatively new app, relatively new version of the app. And so if you sign up and use that code, um, they will hook you up with 25% off this cutting edge tool to rapidly improve your health and fitness. Ladies, gents, thanks for being here. You're going to love this podcast with Adam Bornstein. And when you do, listen all the way through the end because there's always some incredible insights if you hear something that you're unsure of, if you're, you want some, some insights, if you want some feedback, I suggest you head over to my Facebook group where we jump in there and get, uh, you know, give you guys some insights as often as we can. Join the Muscle Intelligence community of men around the world who are ultimately taking action to improve themselves so we can show up more effectively for what matters most to us, which in my world is family, finances, and fitness. Gents, ladies, thanks for being here. Enjoy the podcast. And don't forget to support our podcast sponsor, AIM7. That's AIM7. 
Scroll down the show notes, click the link, and join the app today, integrated with whatever wearable you currently have, learn how to actually use that data and make the most of it. Mr. Adam Bornstein, welcome to the Muslim Intelligence Podcast, sir. Briefly been discussing our last 10 years of history and me watching you from afar, truthfully being a leader in the health and fitness space, really someone who works behind the scenes but it seems like you're almost the chess master or maybe the puppet master pulling a lot of strings in some really high-end uh, conversations, man. So I'm truly honored and privileged to have, to have you here. Thank you. I appreciate you taking me on today, Ben. Yeah. So as I said, uh, just previous when we began chatting, my first exposure to you was uh, with the book Engineering the Alpha that you wrote with uh, John Romanello. I think that was like 2012 to 13. Yeah, it's it's crazy how long it has been. But yeah, I think 2012 or even started working on like 2011, but came out, yeah, 2012, 2013. Yeah. And you know, I'm someone who kind of keeps my ear to the ground and just kind of like what's going on in general in the world and who's doing exceptional things. Like I always try to keep myself to the standard of like, I want to be the best at whatever I do and I want to be in contact with the best. And and so I'm always like, well, who runs this guy's stuff? And who's in charge of this person's stuff? And so I'm always trying to find the best people to connect with and collaborate with. And it seems like everywhere I look, it's like, oh, yeah, that's Adam Bornstein. Like, oh, yeah, that's Adam Bornstein. Adam's already there. Like, oh, okay. I guess this this guy is a, a truly a, a wizard and truly a genius behind the scenes of people like Tim Ferriss and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Let's start with chit chatting about Engineering the Alpha. And that was a book that I promoted to my list 2012 because I believed in it. I liked it. I like John. I like yourself, obviously. And tell, tell me about that book. Like, what what kind of spearheaded that? What initiated that coming on? And how do you feel about that book now? Yeah. So, it's interesting. My relationship with John began truly, and I think he would say the same thing, with John stalking me when I was the fitness editor for Men's Health Magazine. For a long time, I was the fitness editor of Men's Health Magazine. And, you know, therefore, I was the gatekeeper to in a time that is so different than now, right? So, if you go back in the Wayback Machine, distribution was owned by a select few. So getting in magazines or having them promote you was a growth hack, if you will, to reach more people. Social media where isn't where it was today. You have access people. Email lists have been, you know, around since the beginning of time. And it is a wonderful way, I think, forever and always to connect with people. But if you really wanted to like elevate yourself or go ahead and like throw a nice like logo on your website, like you had to get in there. And John was obsessed with trying to like get in there. And he did a great job of just like trying to deliver value, deliver value. And then, you know, I eventually got John in the magazine, got to know him pretty well. He was really much into the internet fasting and stuff where it's funny to talk about it now. But when back in, you know, when I first met John, like 20, 2009, 2010, because then we started working on a book and writing a book is multi-year process. You know, intermittent fasting wasn't big, right? You really had two people, I would say, talking about intermittent fasting. You had Brad Pilon, you had Martin Burton, and it was Stop eat. and that was it, right? And no one really knew about it, but it was super interesting at the time, right? So, and I then dabbled with it. And it was such an easy construct, right? I was like a two p.m. to ten p.m. faster, and it was really interesting. And I loved the science of things. I got my job at Men's Health because I was able to find that beautiful intersection between I could read science because my background was in science and working in research labs, but then I could write for the average person in a way that they can understand it and more importantly, put it into action. Mm -hmm. John's a great marketer and had a big list and John had this really cool idea. And the more I dug into the research and all the potential ways it could help people and then a narrative and then we didn't want to write a fitness book like a fitness book, right? We want to take people on a hero's journey and just like really make it entertaining. I'm like, we got something pretty cool here. I know I can write. 
I know I can market and publish and, you know, help you put together book proposal. And I know John's a really talented writer and knows how to market and has a big list of scholars. I'm like, let's do a book. And this thing came together. It was a huge book deal. It was a huge deal at the time. Ended up being a New York Times bestseller. And I'm proud of that book. At the same time, if you ask me my thoughts about that book and what I know now about intermittent fasting, there's a lot that I would just not share again, or I would not promote or straight up, I got wrong, mm-hmm. right? I made the fallacy of like seeing the bright, shiny object, getting excited and making assumptions before there was enough evidence to say that what we are saying is reality. We did the best it's you could with the information you had, right? Right. And I, and I think, you know, as time goes on, I've become more patient, which oftentimes means like you just don't pump out as much stuff because I became obsessed with helping people and not like creating more confusion. And that's not to say I think intermittent fasting is bad. I don't. And there are many people that it can help them quite a bit. It is to say that many of the claims made about it, either from a hormonal standpoint, growth hormone, cortisol, insulin, everything that has to do with autophagy was wildly overstated and sometimes an inaccurate reflection. I do still think intermittent fasting is a beautiful construct that makes it easier to know like, hey, eat between this window. But a lot of the mechanisms and the laws of supported benefits, uh, supposed benefits, I think were very much overstated. So when I look at that, and then also even the way that we structured a diet plan and a fitness plan, you get, you know, you learn over time. And I realized that a lot of the things there were not sustainable because the challenge for me is like you write this book and you, if you do it the right way, you truly believe that it's great and you're proud of it and you put it out. And you want it to become this uh, sustainable kind of long-term solution. And when it's not that, the hope is that you have enough self-awareness to ask yourself like, well, why not? And what could I have done differently? As opposed to looking at the people and be like, oh, you didn't do the plan. Oh, you must not have been motivated enough or committed enough. And while that might be applicable to some people, I think the better answer is like if you give someone a really good plan that they can run with, it does become sustainable. And I think seeing the aftermath allowed me to ask a lot of good questions that I think ultimately has made me better, made me a better communicator or or helped me understand like how to better help people with health and fitness stuff. But that was, I mean, that was a wild ride. It was a fun book. It was a great time. And there's still so much good information there. It's just, I think a lot of the claims are what we know now, a little overstated. I think depth, right, Adam? I think, um, you know, at any age, we're always getting, we hope we're getting better and our depth right. of thought, our depth of knowledge changes. And I think in the beginning, you know, it's the Dunning-Kruger thing. You're like, oh man, this is the thing and everyone needs to do this. And I did the same thing. You know, I was very, very um, heavy and hot hot on very specific topics and just, you're all in, right? We're passionate guys like, oh, it's right. this. And you're like, oh, it's that in this context for this person, but for everyone else, it may be contextually different. Right. So I, w- I want to take you in a slightly different direction than maybe I intended. So in 2010, you started writing Engineering the Alpha, give or take, and you knew you had this incredible platform. You had Men's Health, you had Romanello's email list, and uh, you knew that if you wrote a book that you were proud of, you know, with your writing experience, that you were going to crush it. So I have two questions that are in some way linked. One, if you are uh, writing a book now, how would you approach marketing it if you wanted to get to the same level of notoriety since you don't have men's health? And maybe you have an email list, but like men's health is no longer really the same giant, the behemoth that it was then. Not at all. That's one, that's one question. And the other question is uh, any 
advice for someone who's maybe starting in the fitness industry or who's, you know, a relative beginner, say, hey, like really thinking about their concept uh, at a deeper uh, way. Like what have you learned from your navigation of your theory at that time that you may apply to the new book that you're writing, if that makes sense? Yeah. I'm going to answer the second one first. I think the second one leads into the first, right? So, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, I was was lucky enough to work with Tim Ferriss for a long time. And I think the best part of working with someone like Tim, where you kind of run his entire media empire, and that is a media empire, is you hope to soak up a lot of his lessons, right? Like my job is to amplify things, come up with great ideas. And like, can that happen with anything from like podcasts to books and just like Tim's brilliant. Uh, but then you want to see like, well, how does he think about things? And I think what allows Tim to be so great is that he looks at problems fundamentally differently than most people, which makes it harder for him to come to answers. But then those answers end up being much more valuable than just looking at it dead on. And I even mentioned this uh, in my book in terms of like how I tried to tackle the problem of like, why is it so hard for people to be healthy and taking it from this kind of psychological angle? And there are two things that I think are, are helpful when people are then trying to figure out, well, then how do I go ahead and just like make my inroads? And uh, one of these is like this question that Tim would ask me all the time. And it would be like, if this were easy, what would it look like? Right? Because most really good things you want to accomplish are incredibly hard, right? But the idea of like, if this were easy, uh, what would it look like forces you to essentially like look at like, well, what are the biggest barriers that stand in the way to allowing you to have this success? And like, what would kind of a dream scenario be? And this also reminded me of, you know, eventually I get to work with a lot of cool people. For a while, I worked with Reed Hoffman, who's the founder of LinkedIn and PayPal. And we helped produce a podcast for him, Masters of Scale. And Masters of Scale, first episode that we ever did was with the founders of Airbnb. And they talked about how like where their great insight of Airbnb came was that like, they were essentially putting limits on what they could make the experience. And instead of coming up like, what was the four star or five star, the experiment that they put on like, what would be a 10 star experience? There's no 10 star experience, but the idea is like something so outlandish. And what they came up with, and you know, this was many years ago, they recorded this, but it was something along the lines of like their 10 star experience. And this is before Airbnb was Airbnb, right? It's like you go online, you book this place. And the next thing you know, someone rings your doorbell and like Elon Musk is at your door. And this was the example. This isn't like, I'm not using Elon because he's the news. Like Elon Musk is at your door and he's there in like a limo and he goes and drives you to this like bougie, amazing home. And then you walk into the home and they walk you into the backyard and you walk into a spaceship and it takes you up to the moon. And on the moon, you're like, stay, you're staying in a place with a view down of earth. That's the 10 star experience. So obviously that wasn't going to happen, but this was a forcing function of like, if you can come up with the 10 star experience, your four or five star experience is going to be much better. So what I say, this is like when you're trying to come up like, well, how do I get good? How do I make an inroad? A, you got to be thinking about like, if this were easy, what would it look like? So what are the things that are standing in your way from making the impact that you want? Is it an audience? Is it a great idea? Is it support from others? Is it an experience and education that gives you enough of an insight to be able to like develop your own, what is known as like specific knowledge that could have you stand up? Is it even knowing who you want to help? You know, I've got rules in life and like rule number one of like building a business is know your audience Mm -hmm. a lot of people never even take the time to think about like well who is my audience and what are they consuming and what do they like what do they not like is the opportunity in doubling down on something that they like and giving more of that or is the opportunity in finding what they don't like and creating something that fundamentally does not exist and i think a lot of people when they want to 
write a book, start a podcast, or grow a social media audience. They just think, I need to do that thing. And there's so much power of this, like going slow to go fast, right? Take the time to ask these really, really difficult questions that force you to think through how great can I make something or where should I be focusing my time or what audience should I be focusing on? And when you answer those questions, you're going to have a lot of clarity on like, A, like what can I do and what can I do really well? And like B, do you even have a clear direction? So I think a lot of the frustration is like there is no very, very clear vision. Talk about Arnold. I've worked with Arnold for more than 10 years. There is no one better I've ever met than having a very, very clear vision on what he wants to do and then trying to build the habits and routines that allow that to become a reality. And he is just relentless about it. And as things become a bigger barrier, he's great. Going to the gym is harder from now. He's 76 years old. He does. He gets up. He's got a bunch of animals in his home. He feeds his animals. He has his coffee. He calls his friends. His friends come to his house and they ride their bikes to the gym. He forces his friends to come there to make sure that he doesn't become his own worst enemy. So he still shows up because he loves training six days a week. It wasn't like that when he was in his 20s and 30s, but he knows what his vision is. He knows what he wants to do. And then he builds an infrastructure. So I think asking these harder questions to come to better answers is important. And then going back to the first question, if you were to recreate this, I think everything starts, and this is a, a Tim thing, which he borrowed from Kevin Kelly, is this idea of a thousand true fans. And I mentioned the thousand true fans and how important it is to everything I said, because the thousand true fans are the people who are just like your ride or die. They are so freaking passionate about like what it is that you have to say that they won't be able to shut up about it. And if you really want to create a groundswell and you assume that you have none of the competitive advantages, because I'm assuming no competitive advantage, right? Competitive advantage could be you get a friend, maybe you know Ben and Ben can like, uh, you know, talk on your behalf and then Ben can reach out to five other people that he knows and those five people can reach out to three other people. I do think leveraging relationships is a big way that you can make a book great. But books on their own really become a Ryan Holiday quote here, perennial sellers by being so good that people can't stop talking about them. So A, you got to make sure the concept is so good. But B, in order to make sure a concept is so good, you have to make sure that it speaks to a very specific audience whose social capital is so heavily invested in what you want to share that when you create this, they have no choice but to not shut up about it because you have touched on something that's so important. And this gets back to knowing your audience. It gets back to having this a thousand true fans. And it get back gets back to trying to not necessarily create something for everyone, right? It is much more powerful to have a very clear audience of who you want, of what you want to create, know what you are great at, know where you can have the biggest impact. And then instead of saying like, oh, this uh, applies to 90% of people, if it applies to five or 10% of people, that can actually be the greatest way to cut through the noise because those five ten, or 10% of people is a big enough piece of the pie and because they're going to be so passionate about it, they will tell everyone, you will have an army or an army of a thousand people that will keep on talking about how great this thing is. And because of the way social media now works and word of mouth and the way that like virality can be literally anything. If you have people who are willing to vouch for you because you really hit the nail on the head and you spoke to something that is so narrowly focused, that's when you can cut through the noise. And I think it is much easier to create a book today, especially if it is your first book for a very narrow audience that becomes almost like this underground bestseller. And then each person has aspirational, inspirational people in their life. And it has this domino effect truly where more and more people will read it because so many people won't shut up about it. And then in the second book or the third book, you have the opportunity to go ahead and maybe write other ones. Or you might find that writing the book isn't necessarily 
the thing. Maybe it's a podcast to start with. Maybe it's a blog and the book comes later and just take time with it. A great example is like James Clear spent forever building out his blog, right? Didn't do a book forever, but he didn't have a thousand true fans, right? He had like a hundred thousand true fans, but he was patient with it. And the moment that that man dropped a book, the moment that he dropped Atomic Habits, he didn't need to market Mm. because those people on his email list were so passionate. And what was the impact of the go slow to go fast, build it the right way, create so much content where like people know you and trust you and believe in you and vouch for you. Atomic Habits, I think, has been a best-selling book on Amazon for three years straight out of all books. It might be two years straight, but it is it is a category killer, tens of millions of copies. And that is a perfect example of like habits weren't a big thing years ago when he's, you know, habits have always been around, but it wasn't this thing that it is now. And now anyone who gets to follow in his wake actually gets to clean up as well. Cause now you see so many more books about habits that do well, because now people understand the power of atomic habits. And there are always going to be little nooks and crannies where, you know, it's hard to build the habits. So there are many, many other opportunities to create content. That is a super long-winded answer to your question, but I think that what that hints at is that this stuff, as everyone knows, anything worthwhile is not easy, but the easy things become less complicated when you take more time to think about who is this for, how am I different, what is that, what am I great at, and how am I going to build a true connection with people who are willing to speak about the thing that I'm doing so passionately so I don't have to be going around and sounding like a used car salesman because at some point, you know, even if it's the best thing in the world, people still feel like they're being sold to rather than having something given of value to them. Yeah. So much value there, man. And that was definitely not long. That was succinct uh, and with how much value you provided. One of the frameworks that I use, and I think it's relevant to think through this, it's helped me anyways, and I'm curious if you have any feedback, is like, if I'm trying to deliver a solution, what would it look like if I removed time and money? Meaning, there's no constraints on how much time it takes me to do it. There's no constraints on how much money. Like what would be the ideal best case scenario I could deliver? Doesn't matter how much it costs. Doesn't matter how long it takes me to deliver it. And I start from that. Similar to what you said about um, the, the scaling. I forget the gentleman's name, the scaling podcast, the Airbnb guys. Yes. It's like that. Masters of me, scale. Yep. Master of scale. Um, so, you know, what would it look like if, if money were no object and time were no object and I could just solve it? Like literally, I'm going to move into this person's house and I'm going to solve this problem and Right. You start putting yourself in their shoes and start kind of navigating, oh, that would be great. Let's add this. And, and then you start looking for ultimate ways that you can you can deliver these amazing um, results or these amazing experiences and ultimately products. So I think from people in the fitness industry, all of those contexts, starting what it sounds like is like start from a dream come true scenario and then reverse your way into, well, regardless of what it's going to cost you, could I do this or how would it look like and um, building it from there. Uh, another thing that came up uh, in what you were saying that I thought would be, um, you know, maybe relevant to discuss is navigating this dream come true scenario and delivering something that's exceptional. And uh, how do you parse between like modeling someone else that already exists? Because it seems as though what most people are doing right now is they're modeling and parroting rather than reinventing things. Because obviously, social media just gives everyone. Uh, complete visibility and transparency. I can see everything in, in everyone's business for the most part. Right. So I just want to come along and kind of model and parrot what Arnold's doing or Tim Ferriss, whomever. Like, it's, oh, I'm just going to basically regurgitate with these people. But like, how many people do you know have, have now have an equivalent to a five bullet Friday email? It's like endless. Um, now, do you think that's a great idea? Like model what works or is your thought process more along the lines of what you said? Like 
find the best version of the iteration you think works for you and solve that problem in a unique way? Or how do we, how do we bridge those two? Yeah. You know, like most things, the answer isn't going to be one or the other. I think like living in black and white thinking, dichotomous thinking oftentimes becomes very, very dangerous. Um, and we even find science about dieting, like people who avoid this, di- you know, the dichotomy of like, this is either good or bad are actually much more successful on diets because they don't overstress every single decision, right? You don't want to spend your whole life as like a game of Pong where you're bounced one way or another. Uh, so two things that I will say, well, I'll, I'll say three things about this. I love your drill of like dreaming up the biggest thing. And then I think the difficulty sometimes is like we do react to deadlines, right? And we'll fill the space. So if we give ourselves a year to do something, we'll take the full year. So a great forcing function is being like, all right, if this is my five-year plan or this is my 10-year plan, and this is what I want to do. Once you have this big, beautiful dream, then you do the hard part, right? What would this look like if this were easy? How would I do that in six months? And it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to do it in six months, but like you're going to learn that you're cutting the fat and you're going to identify again, like what are the barriers? Because some of these things do take time. So it's not being like, how do I do it in a week? You don't want to be unrealistic. You still want to give yourself time, but then you really want to challenge yourself to see like, well, where am I putting unnecessary barriers or where am I actually just like not willing to do the hardest thing possible to allow me to reach this goal in as quick as amount of time possible, which is really what you want to figure out because then that forces you to just put your time, energy, money, whatever it is into the things that really make a big difference. That's another way of looking at like an 80-20 analysis, right? Where everyone's like Pareto principle is like, ah, oh, allows you to cut the fat. But really what Pareto principle does is it allows you to identify the things that move the needle. And I like to say that instead of Pareto, my spit on that is like, I want to make sure that I'm always moving boulders and not pebbles. And I think a lot of people spend a lot of time and energy kicking dirt and then they wonder why things don't move. And it's like, yeah, because you're just moving pebbles. It was never going to create enough energy to get the type of impact that you want. If there is something that someone is doing, the parroting is out there. I mean, social media is such a great example. Like I'm sure a couple of years ago, no one was walking around in grocery stores doing it. And man, I can't scroll a feed without like everyone is suddenly in a grocery store. Uh, I don't know how I haven't actually seen this happen when I go shopping it live and in person because it seems like everyone is doing this. If someone has a great idea and you think you can do your own variation in a way and you want to test to see if that works, you don't have to reinvent the wheel for everything, right? Like some things are just good ideas. The great part about Five Bullet Friday, and I was there when we came up with that with Tim, is, you know, People want Tim's insights. We are very voyeuristic in nature, but like you couldn't easily find that from Tim. Tim, it shares and creates a ton of content, but his podcast is really uh, following on like the tools, tactics, and habits of all these like very smart, intellectual, world-class performers, right? And his blogs would go really, really deep on something. So if you want to set aside a lot of time to read, and his books were tomes, right? But Tim never offered any short-form content anywhere with specific utility of what he was doing. So it was almost filling this beautiful gap of we know that we are time starved and we know that we are voyeuristic and we know we want to learn. What if we present a new offering of something that is very, very bite-sized because Tim does love long form and he is fantastic at it. So then like if you find yourself that you only do bite-sized content and then you like add another like version of Five Bullet Friday, are you really amplifying or adding something or are you just copying because you see someone else doing it without understanding why they did it, the purpose it served in their ecosystem and why people love it? It's very important to question even if you don't know, go through the process of being like, why might this be so successful? 
And when you can ask those questions, be like, okay, if applied to me, why might this be successful? Or how can I you know, take a version of this and do it in a way that fills a similar gap? So there's no problem with doing that if there's a reason to believe it's going to be successful because I think the fallacy is seeing someone do something and then you do it yourself and thinking it's going to have the same impact. One, you're not them. Two, if the hole it was filling, you've already plugged, right? That's like going ahead and being like you have a full tank of gas and you're just going to start pouring gasoline in. More gas on top of a full tank doesn't make your car better or hold more gas, right? It's just spilling. It's overfilled. So it's like it's making sure that it's going ahead and, and serving a purpose. And then coming up with new stuff is great as long as you kind of go through the same drill of like, why am I doing this? What is the purpose? Why might people love it? How is it different? What need is it fulfilling for people? What problem is it solving? And I think these are all the things that, you know, you have to ask yourself because just ripping off what someone else is doing you do run the risk of just being a second rate version of that. And then you're a second rate version and you don't want that to be the case. You don't want to be second rated anyway, because then like that's the perception or perspective people develop of you. So there is no need to make sure everything is original as long as people are going to get a ton of value out of it because you're filling some gap that doesn't currently exist. Why did Tim Ferriss and Arnold Schwarzenegger and ultimately men's health, men's fitness, hire Adam Bornstein. Men's health hired me because I was really persistent. I applied for an internship in men's health and came away with their job as their fitness editor. And I think that what I did really well when trying to get the job at men's health was really speak to what I could do differently that wasn't a commodity. Right. So at the time I was, I saw that there was a lot of change. One that's not a commodity is like there, I thought there was very few people who had a science background who could write, who also trained people in a background of nutrition. So you have to go through these edit tests and every single edit test, I wanted to be able to show what I could bring to the table, which wasn't just usually have one of two camps. You're like a fitness person who's trying to learn how to write or this writing person who's trying to like understand fitness, but very few also had the science aspect or the hands-on. So I really tried to go and flex on like who's going to have all four of these aspects am i the most seasoned writer no am i the best trainer in the world no am i the top scientist you'd hire no but in terms of someone who has legitimate experience because i applied to men's health later in my life mid late 20s i leaned on that experience and where i could really stand out where i felt like so many things in life are a commodity and if i wasn't what they're looking for i could live with that but i didn't want to go and do exactly what everyone else did. I want to show like, if you're going to get me, that fitness and nutrition space will be different. And I wanted to bring ideas. Social media was just starting. So I was bringing an idea of like, well, how do we create content that is designed for Facebook? You got to think this back 2007, 2008, right? Like brands weren't doing that. How do we go? And video was not big then. How do we go ahead and do a lot of video stuff? Because I'd been media trained. So I knew that I could go on and bring video and then we can take that video and turn that into like short form content or we can throw ads against or we can take video content and turn it into written content or written content and turn to video so it becomes experiential so you have multiple touch points right i helped create a video game i helped out with books i just wanted to tap into everything i had and i was very persistent and uh, you know almost not willing to be egotistical about it where i was like listen i know who i am and if i have to start an intern and work my way up it's fine i truly applied for an internship and I had a layover because I was living in Florida at the time on my flight 
back from Pennsylvania, layover in Chicago, and while I was on layover in Chicago, I got a call from Adam Campbell, who ended up being my boss over there, being like, hey, yeah, no, no internship, we're sorry, but would you like to actually be our like fitness and nutrition editor? And I was like, um, not, mm-hmm. not too bad. Tim opportunity came along where I'll never forget. Tim was looking for an editor and I had met Tim already. And I reached out to Tim to offer to help him find this editor with full intent to help him find this editor. Uh, that was going to, you know, help him manage his blog and then maybe grow his email list and give him a lot of focus on what he wanted to do with the podcast. It was very, very early on. And I'm going through all these people and I'm seeing what they're recommending they would do for Tim and how they grow his audience. And as you can imagine, Tim was very particular. And I, um, this time, had my own business. I had no plans of ever working for anyone again. I'll never forget the, the email was said, the subject line was something along the lines of like, I said, I'd never do this again. And I sent an email to Tim and I was just like, I have no desire to work for anyone, but I see everyone's ideas that they come up with, what they would do with you, how they grow these things. And I can't help but sit here knowing that I actually have better ideas than all of them. And here's what I would do. And if you want, instead of having me help you hire and find this person, do you want me to help you, you know, focus on, well, how would we build out an email list? How could we grow your podcast? How could I come in house and do so many of the things that you are so spectacular at doing? but giving you more bandwidth of doing it. And just, it was, right, it's a show, not tell game. I told him and he grilled me. He asked me many questions. Like, well, how would you do this? How would you do that? And and I was not afraid to just be put on the spot. And I can always live with being wrong or having bad answers. I can't live very well with not putting out there or not being afraid to like say what I think will work, even if it's very different. And, you know, to his credit, he gave me a chance and I don't know anyone who is more demanding, but also more willing to try things because Tim is like, Hey, if you say you can do this, I'm going to give you all the resources to make it happen. And if it doesn't happen, I want to know why. And then I want you to fix it moving forward. And he's got really high expectations. And I love that because I have super high expectations for myself with Arnold. I think it was the fact that one, he likes that I'm very, Arnold gravitates towards kind and optimistic people. And I met Arnold by happen chance, right? So like I didn't meet Arnold directly. I lived in Santa Monica for a while. They trained at a gym. And there was always this guy who would come up to me like after my workout and ask me questions. He was always for respectful. And I always just made time to answer those questions. So I know the gym could be an intimidating question, uh, of an intimidating place. What gym did you train at? Uh, Iron. It's on 20th and Broadway. I loved it. It was close enough to my home that if I wanted to, I could even walk to it. And so I trained there and... I would just always interact with this guy and always help out when he wanted, yeah, when he had questions. And this continued on for months. And then one day this guy just asked, like, if I want to go grab lunch with him, asked me to meet at his office. I go to, like, meet at the office he gives me and you walk in, there's security right there and the corridor is like this mural of Arnold. And I'm like, no, that's weird. Whatever. We're in LA. Go up to the third floor and the elevator doors open and there's just, like, movie poster, movie poster, movie poster. And you're like, and it's all Arnold stuff. And then you get down to the end of the hallway and there's a door there with the governor's seal. Um, and I'm like, where in the world am I? I walk in there and it's, you know, the guy who I was helping out, Daniel was Arnold's chief of staff. And he was just like, you had no idea who Daniel was. And it was just like, you're a good person, you're kind. And then I was willing to help out with Arnold without ever expecting anything in return. I helped him when he wanted to build a website and get back into fitness and uh, read stuff that he was doing. And it was just like, I, you know, 
my expectation was I just get to work with Arnold and that's cool. And sometimes things in life are worth doing if they're cool. And, you know, I had a job, I had money, but I was just like, this is cool to be able to help someone who's truly trying to make an impact. And I never asked for anything until like he started offering to do things to help me. And we just started up a working relationship that was, I think, just built on mutual respect and being kind and being optimistic and trying to make a difference in people's lives. And then at some point, you know, you got to make sure that the stuff you do performs or does well, right? At the end of the day, you can be the nicest, kindest, right? Hardest hustling person in the world. But if your stuff doesn't perform, it doesn't perform. And, you know, it, it, if we were to boil it down, right, I could talk about how I got my inroads and how I got my opportunity, but the way I've been able to work with all these people for a very long pe- period of time is that it's no different than training for something. It's like you show up and you have to be intensely focused and you have to have probably insanely unrealistic expectations. And then you got to deliver on a level that is just even beyond their own. And that's how you impress people. When you go ahead and do things even beyond what people thought was possible, they'll continue to give you more opportunity. You'll earn a lot of trust and they will speak on the behalf, on your behalf. And I mean, me helping out Arnold allowed me to help out LeBron James, right? Me help out Tim allowed me to go and help out Reed Hoffman. Like, I do think it was the funniest thing for so we talk about me being the man behind the scenes. I've got a consulting company called Pen Name. And for the longest time, I didn't have a website, right? How everything was word of mouth. And I'm working with these, I got to work with Microsoft and Dollar Shave Club when they're huge and all these brands. And it was like, Everyone's like, what do you do? And like when our friends just started calling me the ghost in the machine. And that's why now like the pen name logo, the pen name logo has a little, if you look in the P, it has a little ghost. And I ended up applying that then to books. I've written many books that you will never know unless you find me the acknowledgements of athletes and actors and famous people where I love writing. It's a skill that I have. I feel that if I spend enough time with people, I can learn their voice. And it's almost like method acting. And then I earned a reputation where, you know, I did engineering the alpha. And then for really the last nine years, I've written many books, but you won't see my name on them because I've just been ghostwriting books for people until, you know, I knew I wanted to write this book. And I actually had the idea for this book back in 2014, but I didn't know how to write the book. I didn't have the right answers and talk about going slow to go fast. I went really slow with this book just because I, I was either going to do this book or I was going to do no book. And I was willing to take the time to figure that out. And I obviously had the privilege of having other ways to make money, businesses to run, books to write, where I could focus on other things until I kind of figured out how to put this one together. Yeah. And speaking of this new book, I love where you've landed. So it seems like, and I'm not trying to steal your thunder, but it seems like after my you know, 20 years of in fit- being in the fitness industry, you realize that there's no one diet, right? There's no there's no one there that works for everybody. And um, you know, I'm I'm still coaching people and love it. And as I think I've heard you say, nutrition's a behavior. And if you can uh, learn what's driving those behaviors, you can learn to start influencing how people are making their decisions. And as soon as people start to create pol- polarization with nutrition, polarization with foods, there becomes this charge, this energy. It's almost like it's this repulsion, this attraction. People are, you know, it's it's the bodybuilding whole community. It's like this binge and purge, this like restrict and then indulge uh, relationship that just screws up everyone, everyone, myself included for years. But there was this like massive amount of, early in my body, massive amount of restriction. And then in your mind, you're like, oh, I get a cheat day in three months and I'm just going to do eat everything under the sun, put on literally, I remember one time in 2006, 
I competed at 237, and I think three days later, I was 280 or some ridiculous, like it was crazy. And uh, it was like, yeah, I mean, water and sugar and- Right, yeah. Um, but like, uh, and, and I try to dissuade everyone I can from creating that relationship. So I love uh, hearing all these things you're coming out with now in this book. So if, I'd love to hear, uh, you know, what started in 2014, what continues to drive it now and, and really what the book is all about. Yeah, what started in 2014 is you- do this best-selling book that tens of thousands of people buy and it was great and then like you fast forward a year or two and you have so many people then reaching out and essentially saying like this stopped working for me or i can't do this anymore and it it did require a lot of soul searching and the book was originally going to be like well why can't people stick to health plans like like we have no shortage of diet books right and now even today fast forward like we have so many diets and nutrition plans and youtube channels and podcasts and it's like technology we have everything we should need to be healthier and we are less healthy than ever right like three-fourths of the u.s alone is either overweight or obese and over the last three decades that is the worldwide trend in every single country so it's not just a u.s problem like what in the world is going on when we have every competitive advantage that isn't working and we could look at policy and government and we could probably talk all day about things that they could do differently but that's not mistake being able to do things better versus not doing anything at all the government legitimately spends billions with a B of dollars on trying to make us healthier. So it's not like a and then people are like, well, shit on like things like the food pyramid and stuff. Like anyone actually follows the food pyramid, right? Like we, uh, I don't care what that thing is. No one's actually following it. So don't say like, that's the poor model. No one's actually following this. So we have this adherence issue and we have a, you know, ultra processed, hyper palatable food environment issue. And there are all these different things that like, you can't just point your finger at one thing, but why in an age of information and technology and, and wherewithal, is it harder than ever for people to become healthier? And that's the problem I wanted to solve in 2014 when I thought, you know, I thought I dropped the mic, right? I put out an engineer in the alpha and I'm like, ah, we good. Everyone's solved. Just buy my book. You'll be fine. And then like you get the people who are really compliant and it's not working. And, you know, you learn after enough years of coaching people or running businesses or doing things that like you're never as hot or amazing as you think you are. And the way to become really good is to open your ears and listen and really take that stuff to heart because people will respond well and respect someone who is willing to look inward, take accountability and not stop trying to solve the problem that they claim that they're all about. Mm-hmm. You claim that you're about this and like fucking be about it or like try and sell stuff to people. And I don't care about selling stuff to people. I want to truly solve this stuff and figure it out. And, you know, so it led me down this long road where it took me like three years to put together a book proposal. In 2017, I sent this book proposal to my, my book agent and amazing book agent and have a book agent who's willing to tell you when you suck if you do and he's like this is terrible we can't send this to a publisher and i'm like come on i'm like scott i'm new york Times best-selling author you've seen the you saw my last book that goes for it right number one number one new york times bestseller and he's like yeah i don't care this isn't good like no one's gonna buy this and like it definitely hurt and there was a little bit of like ego being like maybe i've outgrown this guy right and that's just like no like you put people and good friends in places to uh, keep you in check and I had to go back to the drawing board and you you start really questioning well, like what is it stands away and a lot of these questions that I mentioned earlier like what would this look like if, if this were easy and also this idea of inversion which is something that I practice a lot where instead of starting at the beginning you start at the end so a lot of times like when people start a new diet or people try to get healthier right we set goals are really ambitious our motivation is high compliance is really high 
And like, there's no real issue in weeks like zero to four, no matter how hellacious a diet is, no matter how restrictive it is. Like anyone can pretty much do that, but then they fizzle out or life happens or they get burnt out or they're not sleeping well or all these different things happen. So instead of doing that, which is what everyone does, right? Let's set goals. Let's do it. Start at the end. You have failed. You didn't do what you thought you were going to do. What happened that got you there? And you start asking yourself that question of like, what happened? And you start talking to people, like actually interacting with people. And to me, there are three things that stood in the way. It was cost, compliance, and complexity. Either these plans were too costly, where like health became a thing of haves versus have-nots. They were too complex where maybe it was great, but like people couldn't wrap their heads around it. Most people don't have all the time to like know everything about nutrition or fitness. And like, it's just like, it's too complex. Like if you're lucky, they understand a protein, a carb, and a fat. And like, they shouldn't have to have a degree in something in order to eat, or they shouldn't have to stress about everything, every single meal. Average person stresses nine times every time they eat. We've got enough stressors in our life. We don't, we don't need that. Right. And then there was like the, the convenience factor, right? Like we know, we know very few things in science, but we know that consistency and sustainability are the number one and number two things that deliver results. So if you aren't fundamentally thinking about like what it is that you can do to help people be as consistent as possible, you're missing the forest from the trees and habit-based change, which is what you really want. I don't care what habit you're building, what diet you're pushing. Habit-based change is based on a simple principle of make it so easy that it's hard to fail. Because if you want to build the habit, you need to make it easy so they can master something and then move on to something more difficult. The analogy that I give people, it's like, if you're going to teach people how to swim, you don't throw them in the deep end and like cut their arm and throw some sharks in there and be like, good luck, you learn how to swim. No, they're going to swing, you know, they're going to sink and be eaten by a shark. You put them in the shallow end and like they put their foot in the water. So they're not afraid of the water and you teach them how to tread water. And from the tread water, they can learn how to like move strokes. They put their face in the water so they don't freak out. If you do this in any other walk of life where you like literally throw people in the deep end, it's very, very obvious. But in nutrition, we're constantly throwing people in the deep end and wondering why they're drowning. We make it so freaking complex. So if you take all of that, I was like, well, how do you eliminate some of that complexity? How do you... Uh, consider convenience? How do you consider cost? And then how do you consider the number one thing that probably gets in the people's way, which is their own perception of themselves and what they think can happen, right? Our, with this son uh, that James Clear talked about, like we, we think that when we want to change, like we take an action, right? Like we start like going to the gym and I like start feeling better. And then I start getting more motivated. And then like, and then I suddenly think like, oh, I'm this good person, right? typically wait for motivation to come. But motivation usually isn't there for most people. What you need to do is change your self-perception first, right? So then how do you take this model of like self-perception is going to lead behavior? Behavior has to be not too costly, not too inconvenient, not too complex. And then how do you recognize how do we get there in the end? Well, what happened is the same thing, right? Like people have to follow these very inflexible, difficult plans. And we say that this is it. If you do not follow this to a T, you screwed up. When you screwed up, you've got to punish yourself or start back at zero or cut out all your carbs and sugar. And what do we do? The mistake isn't the problem. The day that you eat dessert isn't the problem. The day that you skip a workout isn't the problem, right? Our bodies are not so flimsy that like when you eat one bad thing, we fall apart. But diets treat us that way. And like that's the screw up mentality, right? Like 
the moment that you stray from the plan, you think you've done something so wrong that you do tons of compensatory actions that actually do more harm than the original mistake itself. So if you get away from this idea of needing to be perfect, if you get away from needing to compensate every time you do something that isn't super strict, and you teach people what to expect, and you teach people also that, listen, like you might lose five pounds and you might not like suddenly feel better about yourself or have more energy. That's actually part of the journey. If you give people a realistic expectation of what change is going to look like, instead of making it seem like, right, like the pearly gates open up when you like do this diet and everything is easy and you suddenly only crave healthy foods. No, you might do this and crave the stuff that you want even more. If you can have those honest conversations with people and get them to stop thinking that they screw up so that they stop compensating, you can put them in a completely different environment that allows them to build better habits, that allows them to progress to more things, that allows them to stick to a plan for a longer period of time. And that is when the results come and they don't get pissed off because you didn't tell them, hey man, you're going to be shredded in four weeks. Because if you don't think that you tell someone that no matter how ridiculous it might sound to you and they don't think that that's what's supposed to happen if they don't do it, they blame themselves. And people for the last several decades have blamed themselves and they feel like shit and they binge and they do terrible things to themselves and they're in a worse position than they started and they're even more desperate than before and they buy into something more restrictive. And that is the vicious cycle and I wanted that to end. And that's why I had to write this book. And that's why it took forever to figure it out because it, that's complicated, right? But there's like an easy way to put it together and there's an easier way to approach it to help you build health, healthier habits and, you know, hopefully get that desired result that you want without like seeing it vanish after four, eight weeks. Yeah. It's interesting because what comes to mind for me is, and I think I'm fighting a similar battle in my business, is there's so much notoriety or publicity given to the idea of discipline and people like, you got to be as disciplined as David Goggins. You know, you got you to be just insane. And I was like, discipline shouldn't even really play into a nutrition program, in my opinion. Like, the discipline going to the gym is showing up, right? Like, that's the discipline. It, it, but ultimately, that's a habit that can be, you know, stacked. Like, hey, how do we start with five minutes and 10 minutes? And I think people have this mi mindset of like, I didn't, I wasn't disciplined enough to follow the diet. I wasn't disciplined enough to follow the, the, the training plan. Therefore, I'm not disciplined enough to do it ever again. I have this story around discipline. They're like, I'm just not disciplined. I'm not a disciplined person. For, I had a guy ask me yesterday. I said, hey, I used to be a professional bodybuilder. He goes, why'd you give it up? Did you miss the food? Was it too much discipline? I was like, no, not at all, man. It wasn't too much. Like, I didn't find myself disciplined as a professional bodybuilder at all. I just created really effective habits. And I think we're having the same conversation here. Like, People just get down on themselves about not having huge amounts of discipline. I'm like, what if discipline never played into the equation? What if you didn't have to be massively restrictive? And, and I think you and I are, are ultimately landing on the same place. And what if the journey to, towards health or being healthier, achieving what you want, wasn't as complicated or difficult as you've been told? And that doesn't mean that there's not some discomfort in change. Change means facing discomfort and overcoming it, right? That's not delude people. Like this isn't always going to be easy. And people think that looking or feeling or achieving certain goals follows this like road of just pure misery, right? And that is yeah. not aligned. And there's so much room to navigate. We're like, again, like we live in this dichotomous, the black and white thinking of like a perfect example right now is cold plunges are huge. I don't care what you think of a cold plunge if you want to do it or not, but like, 
probably the biggest benefit of a cold plunge is right like a dopamine surge and actually like testing mental toughness if you're doing it for body fat reasons maybe one day we'll find that it's great i have not seen enough literature to believe it but let's just say you're doing it for dopamine and like you just hate doing a cold plunge and like you lack the discipline to do it if the reason you're doing it is you want more mental toughness and you want a dopamine surge there are like 10 other things that you could do to get a surge of dopamine or challenge yourself mentally. You don't have to do the cold tub or you don't have to spend six or eight thousand whatever dollars to get that, right? There are alternatives that will deliver the same outcome if you find that it's not a good fit for you. And like, it's just one example of like numerous where like, there are many different roads you can take. I, I was lucky enough that Arnold wrote the Ford for my book. And one of my favorite parts, it's towards the end of the Ford. He says that, you know, we all in some way, shape or form strive for balance. And you might look at me from my bodybuilder days and think you were not balanced. And he's like, but my version of balance was like, I wanted to be the guy who any week could eat Kaiserschnarren, which is his favorite Austrian dessert or cherry pie, and still be the world's greatest bodybuilder. And that's what he did. Like Arnold and Franco a week before their shows would go to the House of Pies on Wilshire in LA and eat entire pies. Right. And like in Arnold, if you know him as a huge sweet tooth, then for him, that was balanced. And it was just like, and then he had to train more. And that guy lived in the gym, right? His double split is famous. He would go to the gym twice per day when he was in show prep, right? But for him, like he loved the gym and that was fun, but he didn't want it. He didn't count macros. Arnold never counted a macro in his life, right? He would, he truly would out-train his diet. And like when he wanted to cut back, he knew what to adjust. But everyone's got that other thing of like what balance looks like. And your job isn't to just be selfish and be like, well, I want this thing, so I'm just going to do it. No, there's going to be a sacrifice somewhere Mm -hmm. but that sacrifice doesn't have to be the thing that you're always told that it is right the the sacrifice doesn't have to be like i'm not a disciplined person right like discipline can you can become full goggins if you want right or you don't have to right it doesn't require that change in order to be successful that's just one type of change that you can make and i think the goal of health is truly especially when you start to find the change that you can most likely make that will have an impact. And then as you change as a person, you might find that the things you used to think were a crutch that you need no longer serve you. The beauty of like, as we change of people, we see that our priorities change, our interests change, right? I'm sure you could list off dozens of things of like what used to be a priority and you happily did when you were a bodybuilder. Mm -hmm. Then now you have no interest in doing it. I'm sure you could do the same thing as what you did when you were not a father compared to when you are a father. When we change as people, whether because it's forced upon us or because we make it, you have to understand that our perspective and our preferences change too. And I think the mistake we make is we try to change everything at once or force change as opposed to, let me make this one change. Let me get a little bit better. Let me see how I feel. Let me build a habit and become more consistent. And now with this new perspective, now with this new ability, now with this new habit, how do I look at life? differently now and you will find you will but that doesn't require you to change 10 things all at once like change that one and then progress in advance so what if you could summarize your top action items from you can't screw this up your new book that you released now or will release very soon um what are the top action items that you're advocating people do to start ultimately getting the result they want yeah i think one is learning to change your self-perception, right? So learning that like there is a big difference between 
wanting to achieve a goal and who you are as a person. Most people think that if you have not achieved the goal, that means you are not that person. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm not healthy until I lose 20 pounds. No, like if you were putting the effort and you're trying to change, you are a healthy person. You just not have actualized that version of what health is yet because you can't be in this dissonant state. It's two, it's like we have to stop with the punishment of like every single mistake is not some like huge error, right? Where we punish ourselves. At the catastrophizing in wellness is such a huge problem. And you have to understand like where the mind goes, the body will follow. If you think that you can repeatedly tell yourself that you suck or you failed, or you have to start over, or I have to cut out this, this, and this, move to extremes, and that's not going to weigh on you, that's not going to eat away at your discipline or your consistency or even your desire or belief to become healthier, you're kidding yourself, mm-hmm. right? That's like legitimately having your best friend in the world telling you that you suck all the time. You would come to believe it because this is your own internal narrative. There has to be more grace and more patience and not this extreme disruptive narrative that occurs. And three, it's what I focus on. I've talked about five tools in the book. It's creating boundaries that make it easier for you to not be your own worst enemy. And those boundaries can be anything as simple as like learning to take more time to eat. It's staggering when you look at the research. So many people overeat because they eat too quickly. Hunger is a dialogue between your stomach and your brain. When you eat, food goes in your satiety center. It sends a signal up to your brain saying, hey, I'm full. Certain foods will make you fuller quicker and leave you fuller for longer. Those two foods are protein and fiber are going to be the most prominent. So one tool is talking about how to add more protein and fiber. But more importantly, if you eat a whole bunch of protein and fiber, but you scarf it down in eight minutes, which is the average amount of time that it takes a person to eat a meal, guess what? I don't care how much protein or how much fiber you take down in that eight minutes, you're not going to feel full because it takes approximately, right? You don't need the timer on this, about 20 minutes for your stomach to communicate to your brain to say, hey, I'm full, right? This isn't the highway. It's a little bit of a slower route. We eat, like I said, within eight minutes. And even when we're eating the right thing, we just keep on eating and eating and eating. And like an hour later, you're like, oh, I'm so overfull, or I can't believe I, you know, I was hungry. I was following my hunger signals. I'm like, no, you weren't. You're ignoring your hunger signals by eating too quickly or eating distracted. There's a fascinating study that I point out where like you took two groups of people, they have the same exact food on their plate, but one people can see that one group can see the plate, the other people can't. So it's the equivalent of being distracted. Let them eat ad lib. Just you eat as much until you're full. The people who were distracted ate several hundred calories more per meal, even though the meals were identical, simply because they couldn't see what was on the plate. When we are distracted, whether we're scrolling on our phone or watching TV or not paying attention, we're not taking in those cues that will help us feel fuller. So it's understanding all these habitual things. We all sit down to eat, probably all, I, I'm terrible. I was, especially before, I remember like writing this as I'm like eating while I'm like typing my computer. I'm like, oh my goodness, what, what am I doing? I'm distracted and I'm scarfing it down probably in like 3.2 minutes. We do so many things that make this unnecessarily hard. And if we can apply these tools, which essentially give us boundaries so that we know when we're doing the right thing versus the wrong thing and then build upon that, it's a lot easier. So I do think it's the self-perception, it's not catastrophizing, and that it's using a couple tools to make it easier to master certain behaviors that can become habits. And then you get to take things in the direction you want, because I do think you want a stable foundation. There's a line in the book that I say, you know, you never, which I took from Alan Cosgrove, you know, who's very, very bright in this field. And, you know, Alan once told me years ago when I was at Men's Health, like you don't want to shoot a cannon from a canoe. So if you imagine a cannon on a canoe, what happens? The canoe topples over, right? 
we oftentimes try and do these like optimizations or these health habits when we don't have a stable foundation. We try and do the crazy complex stuff that gets a lot of likes on social media when we haven't built foundational habits that even allow those things to make a significant impact. So if you can find a way to build a more stable foundation, you're in a better position than that if you want to try more advanced or more complicated or more fringe things that may or may not work, at least be in a position where you can see the benefits of it and like don't over-index again like on those pebbles, right? Like move boulders and then you can figure out where you want to spend your time. Adam, I love it, man. I think this book is uh, going to help a lot of people change their life. I'm super excited to read it myself. I will definitely be picking it up soon. Um, do you want to leave a website or a place where people should go and pick it up other than Amazon? Yeah, you can always get it on Amazon. I do love this website because it's just funny to me. You can go to can'tscrewthisup.com. If you go to can't screw this up, you can buy the book. And uh, yeah, you can always find me anywhere on social media at Born Fitness. And uh, Ben, I just appreciate you having me on and uh, being able to just talk shop with you today. Likewise, man. Massive respect and thing you do what you do. I love, I love hearing you push the envelope and everything you seem to touch turns to gold. So I will be watching. Uh, hopefully we'll be back soon. All right. Thanks so much. That's a wrap, ladies and gents, boys and girls. Thanks for being here. Beth Kolsky, the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. We're all living life. And one thing I'd love for you to get your head around, get your mind around, is the concept of trajectory. What is your current trajectory in your finances? What is your current trajectory in your fitness? What is your current trajectory in your relationships, uh, in your family? And trajectory is a really important concept, really simple concept. This is, well, am I on a, a even level, a horizontal trajectory? Or am I on an upward trajectory or a downward trajectory? And certainly if you're on a downward trajectory, we need to take immediate action. And if you don't know what action to take, then reach out for help. And if you do know what action to take, take diligent, daily, disciplined action. And if you don't, and you're interested in joining the Muscle Intelligence Coaching Community, we work with men over the age of 40 who ultimately are ready right now to commit to being the best version of themselves. And I always say, we treat you like a gold medal winning athlete. And a gold medal winning athlete is someone who come in and we test, right? We're gonna test everything we can. We do um, everything from blood and urine and stool and saliva. And we even can integrate your DNA if you have your DNA data. We create a customized plan for you. Not the best plan for Ben, not the best plan for somebody else, but the best plan for you. We meet you where you are and we give you the next step so that you can take action. And the next step is always very, very simple. Regardless of the challenge you're experiencing, your challenges are not unique. The challenges are common and it requires a small number of things, small number of boxes to be checked. So our coaching starts with what we call a 90-day results accelerator or a 90-day intensive. And we really commit to being the best version of ourselves in the next 90 days. After those 90 days are done, you've achieved some significant percentage of your goal. Have you at least taken a chunk out of the goal? And we decide, hey, do we want to keep going and move at this aggressive pace in, in the direction of our goal? Or, hey, you know what? This is enough for me. We can um, slow things down a little bit and we put you into a retention type program that ultimately allows you to sustain it forever if you want, right? And our, that we just kind of monitor you at the least amount of touch points so you can be successful over time. But we're building this incredible network of men and I feel so blessed for every man in my, in my network. And some of us are on an upward trajectory. Some of us are saying, hey, you know what? I'm ready to take action and move and make things better. 
And some of us saying, you know what, man, I'm doing really damn well in every one of these areas. And the, and the trajectory just stays on the upward, or maybe it stays on the consistent, and we just want to maintain. But whatever, wherever you are, uh, our goal at Must Intelligence is to meet you where you are, provide the right insights, the right context, and ultimately the right action steps to uh, change, to be the best version of yourself. So, Jess, thanks for being here. Thank you to our show sponsors for today, AIM7 and Eric Corum. Uh, love your product, gents. Keep going. I know you're going to keep making it better every every week, every month. And the community has had great feedback. So if you haven't already checked out AIM7, AIM7 is an incredible way to learn how to harness your current stress, your current data from, from your wearables. Most of us have some wearables, whether it be a, a Garmin, a Apple Watch, or a Aura, or even a Polar H10 type strap, and integrating that data to learn what the most effective insights for us are now. You can scroll down the show notes, click on the link, and get 25% off and use the code MUSCLEINTELLIGENCE, all caps. Gents, ladies, thanks for being here. Have an amazing day. Live your greatest life in a body that's absolutely love. And you can, you deserve it, and I believe in you. Go get it. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed